It was the night of Wednesday, January 6th, just hours before the Capitol building had been overrun by protesters, and now Senator Mitt Romney was delivering a passionate speech to his Senate colleagues about the day's events. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. And it's that word, insurrection, that has gotten a lot of attention since that day. Insurrection. Last week was Insurrection Week. What amounts to an insurrection? The truth is that the United States is no stranger to insurrection movements. In fact, it's such a common threat to our government, there are even a specific set of laws designed to help contain them. It has the name, uh, the the very uh, evocative name of the Insurrection Act of 1807. But how effective is the Insurrection Act when it comes to protecting America? And what does invoking the act mean for your constitutional rights? Find out on this premiere episode of Abbreviated. Welcome to the Abbreviated Podcast, where we abbreviate big ideas and possible answers to even bigger questions. On today's episode, we're abbreviating everything you need to know about the U.S. Insurrection Act. So if you're familiar with American politics, you've probably asked yourself why it seems so common and acceptable for senators and other elected officials from one party to support a candidate or policy for years and then suddenly just change their minds. It seems like a pretty huge deal, and yet it happens all the time. And the reason why it's become so normalized, aside from the fact that it makes life easy for lobbyists, has a lot to do, surprisingly, with the Insurrection Act. Insurrection as a word means an act or instance of rising in revolt, rebellion, or resistance against civil authority or established government. At least that's how Merriam-Webster defines it. The word itself can be traced all the way back to the 15th century, but it's popped up quite a few times in American history. The year is 1794, and the Revolutionary War has long been over, but President George Washington is on horseback, again, leading a militia to confront a rebellious group of grain farmers in western Pennsylvania. This is the climax of what was called the Whiskey Rebellion, and the first time the word insurrection is being thrown around by the American public. Ultimately, Washington pardons some of these farmers in a largely symbolic display of unity and domestic diplomacy. It's almost as if Washington is clairvoyantly acknowledging to future generations of Americans that your disagreements will be inevitable, but after justice must come forgiveness in order to move forward as a more perfect union. And that perfect union doesn't last very long. It's 1804, and an opportunistic New York senator is making unpopular headlines. Aaron Burr, a personality notorious for rhetorical debate and verbally villainizing his opponents, has done the unthinkable. Burr's political debates with Alexander Hamilton have graduated to a violent duel. Hamilton is dead, and the country is mortified. This was not the America that the revolution promised. In spite of the outcry from his fellow Americans, Burr maintains his political aspirations, as well as a small but fervent base of support for his extremist rhetoric. Burr begins plotting to enlist an army, and with the help of his political ally, General James Wilkinson, He plans an invasion and takeover of Louisiana and other Western territories, where he will reign as the uncontested de facto leader of his own personal political dynasty. And just like the Trump family have dealt with leaks in their administration, someone in Burr's camp goes to the press. They leak everything. And again, in the way many elected Republican officials have recently turned on the president, General Wilkinson, afraid of public backlash, turns on Aaron Burr. 
Wilkinson writes a letter to President Jefferson warning him that an insurrection is underway. He doesn't mention Burr by name, but between newspapers and Burr's own reckless history, Jefferson already knows who is behind the brewing insurrection. So Jefferson goes to Secretary of State James Madison and asks if the Constitution gives the president the power to put down an insurrection using the American Armed Forces. And Madison says no. You see, both Jefferson and Madison took the legal word of the Constitution as literally as you can. They agreed they'd have to go to Congress and get special permission. This moment is critical in setting a tone for the future of American politics, and it should provide some context for what's happening within the Republican Party right now. This is the moment when President Jefferson makes the calculated decision to turn his political enemy's enemy into his own ally, because Jefferson knows that in order to convince Congress to give him the power to stop Burr, he needs General Wilkinson, Burr's former co-conspirator, to provide that testimonial proof that insurrection is a relevant threat to the American government. And this is it. This is the moment when George Washington's experiment in domestic diplomacy of forgiveness proves how powerful of a political strategy it will be. Because instead of condemning General Wilkinson's treason, Jefferson employs him. He uses him to spread the word that insurrection is coming. The American public becomes so aware of the plot that Jefferson's critics lambasted him for the fact that Aaron Burr wasn't already dead. But Jefferson, to his credit, refuses to act without constitutional authority or approval from Congress. Soon, rumors are flying that Burr is even enlisting help from the British. And then on March 3rd, 1807, Congress passes legislation known as the Insurrection Act, which gives the president authority to use naval or land forces to stop an insurrection. Ironically, Jefferson doesn't even have to use it because Aaron Burr has been in custody for 11 days at this point. However, it doesn't take very long for a sitting president to actually invoke the Insurrection Act because a year later, Jefferson himself uses it when he orders the American Navy to stop merchant ships from ignoring a trade embargo with the British. Years later, Lincoln would use the Insurrection Act as the basis to wage the Civil War. Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy would use it to deploy troops to the South to enforce desegregation when governors refused to comply. It was used in 1992 by President George H.W. Bush during the LA riots, and most recently, and perhaps ironically, it was invoked by President Trump during Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, the merits of which are still being debated. The actual text of the law states that it's meant to protect citizens anytime they're, quote, deprived of a right, privilege, immunity, or protection named in the Constitution. So, when you hear the media use the term Insurrection Act, remember that it's simply meant to protect the civil conditions, the theater of verbal debate that allows democracy to thrive. Because without our ability as Americans to have a discussion with each other, we're really just two old guys like Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton in a pistol duel, and we know the story doesn't end well for either of them. It's important to note that the Insurrection Act is how we as Americans respond to civil rebellion on paper. But how we've always responded in spirit looks a lot more like George Washington did. Fearlessly leading the Republic's army to confront insurrectionists head on. Insurrectionists he knew threatened his government, his life, but most importantly that perfect union he had fought so hard to forge. They were insurrectionists who he knew he could defeat, and they were insurrectionists he would ultimately forgive. For nothing but the good of the union. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Abbreviated. Find us on Instagram at Abbreviated Podcast, and we hope you'll subscribe so you can join us next time when we abbreviate something new. Abbreviated.